podcast lecture number 11, which is the first in a series of podcast lectures on object relations theories. So as that introduction music fades out and I fade back in, uh, let me reiterate something I said just a couple of seconds ago. This is going to be the first in a series of podcast lectures on object relations theories. Now you, my astute listener, will notice that I said object relations theories, plural. I did not say object relation theory, singular. This is important. Um, now your text that you read for this class points out the following thing. I'm quoting from the text here from the chapter on object relations theories. Object relations theory, see they use the singular, is a term that has come to describe the work of a group of psychodynamic thinkers, both in England and the United States. Although almost always written in the singular, object relations theory is not actually a theory because it refers to the work of many writers who did not necessarily identify themselves as part of any given school and who often argued and disagreed quite passionately with one another. So when I read this in your text, I thought to myself, okay, I agree with that. So why do this confusing thing where we continue to say object relations theory singular when in fact we're talking about a plurality of different kinds of sub-theories that are broadly organized around a couple of key assumptions. Wouldn't it just be easier? Wouldn't it just make more sense to say object relations theories, to just go with the, the plural as opposed to using the singular? And that's what I decided made the most sense. And so that is what I am going to do. And because I am in charge, I can do these sorts of things. And also because I'm in charge, I can do another thing, which is say that I think that the chapter that you read on object relations theory is not awful or anything like that, but I wouldn't say it's a good chapter. I would be somewhat critical of it. And my main critique would be that it tries to take a massive, huge amount of content and cram it all into one discrete chapter. And I don't really know about you, but for me, when I, I read this chapter, the result yeah, I think is feeling like I'm on a roller coaster of theory with all these different kind of concepts and ideas whipping past me way faster than I can process them. So if that is how you feel, if you feel the same way that I do, my hope is that this podcast lecture will help add to what you read and your understanding of it by contextualizing it a bit. And if I'm successful in this, what will happen is that by the time you're done listening to these series of podcast lectures and reading the chapter that you read for this week, you will, I, I really do hope, have a much better understanding of the different object relations theories, plural, and kind of how they fit together and where they diverge from one another, right? So kind of see the overlap, the similarity that exists within these theories and be able to understand what makes each of these kind of like discrete sort of sub-object relations theories unique in, in a way. So that's what I'm going to go for here. 
So having said that, let's do a little bit of transition music, and then we're gonna come back, do a review, and jump into some content. start off with our review. The term object relations is a term that by this point in the course, you should have some level of familiarity with. It should not be a new term to you. It should be a term that you have encountered in other theories that we've studied already. So for example, in ego psychology, ego psychologists talk about these things called ego functions, uh, the things that the ego does. One of the ego functions is the ability to create and maintain appropriate object relations. Uh, another way of saying that is that the ego works to create and maintain appropriate relationships with people that are mutually fulfilling for both sides of the relationship, right? You and the person you're in the relationship with both get something of value out of the relationship. And you're able to continue to engage each other in different ways that continue to make the mutually beneficial sort of nature of the relationship uh, perpetuate itself and go forward into the future. That's object relations in ego psychological sense of the word broadly defined. Uh, now, if you look at self psychology, you'll recall that Kohut wrote about these things called self objects. And that additionally is a, another way of thinking about object relations, right? So Kohut has this idea that we have relationships with different people he is able to understand and articulate pretty well that all of our social relationships, all of the relationships we have with everybody we know, they're not equal. Some relationships with people are way more important than other relationships. The relationship that you have with your parents, with your children, with your romantic partner, with your best friend, th those relationships might be self-objects. Those might be relationships where by being in a relationship with this very important person, you are able to get something from the relationship that you cannot produce on your own. That's the way that self-objects work, right? They're, they're these relationships that we use to give ourselves things that we need, but we can't just give them to ourselves. We kind of can only get those needs met by being in relationships with other people. You know, um, you can give yourself a compliment, for example, you can nurture your own grandiosity, but chances are that that is not going to be, not going to have the same effect as other people who are important to you also kind of telling you that they think that you're doing good things, thinking amazing thoughts, producing quality work, so on and so forth, right? That, that you need kind of to have, yes, your own bit of self-esteem, but that self-esteem needs to be consistently nurtured by having other people kind of say things that show that they have esteem for you, right? Now, the, the relationships, like I said, that we have with our closest people in our lives, our, our parents, our children, our best friends, our romantic partners, uh, those are different than the relationships that we have with uh, the barista at Starbucks, right? Now, we, we might go to the same Starbucks every day, see that barista regularly, 
have some nice chit chat from time to time. But that relationship is just not going to be that that object relationship is not going to be the same as the kind of object relationship you have with a self object. There, there's a difference there. So uh, that was kind of a longer. I spent longer on that than I thought. The the important thing to know about self psychology is that it it talks about object relations, and it specifies that there are some object relations that are more important to us than other object relations. Those object relationships that are very important to us are oftentimes self-object relationships. So if you can kind of keep that in your head, that's a bit of a review of self-psychology. Freud also talked about object relations. He talked about drive objects. So these are objects that our drives tend to be focused on, right? So there's this idea that we have a sex drive, that we have an aggressive drive. So with the sex drive, the sex drive is not just like, you know, focused on anything and everything that comes, you know, to be close to you, right? You're not sexually attracted to everything. You're, you're sexually attracted to specific things, uh, specific people or specific qualities that those other people have, right? So Freud talked about things that way. Uh, aggressive is another one here that Freud talks about. So when we feel aggressive, we don't just feel like necessarily like, oh, I want to destroy everything that comes into contact with me. Uh, if I have an argument with somebody, uh, my aggression is probably going to be directed towards that person and the ideas that they're expressing that I find to be problematic or objectionable. I'm not going to have the same sort of you know, aggression that I'm going to direct at somebody else who's involved in the conversation who might be agreeing with me or at some inanimate objects that happen to be around me, right? It gets directed in a, in a certain way. So uh, yeah, I think that's a decent kind of review of how you might have heard the term object relations and the theories that we've covered heretofore. And uh, what I want you to know is that object relations theories, theories, plural, represents an entire body of thought that takes object relations. And instead of having it be just like a little piece of the theory, it takes that, that the idea of relationships with other people, and it makes that the primary thing that they are interested in. Now, object relations theorists are also interested in other things, but the the relationships with objects, the relationships with other people, that is the main thrust of object relations theory. You might say that with drive theory, the primary focus is drive, right? The the drive energies that we have. You might say with self-psychology that the primary focus is also relationships, um, and that, that would be true. But self-psychology doesn't, I think, only privilege relationships to the same degree that object relations does. It also privileges things like empathy, for example. So it's a a little bit different in that way. Uh, In ego psychology, the ego, the formation of a healthy, flexible, strong ego tends to be the primary thing. But in object relations theories, it is the creation of good relationships with other people and the maintenance, the continuing to keep those relationships healthy uh, that is the primary sort of thing that the theories tend to look at, analyze, and discuss. So in this 
podcast lecture in this series of podcast lectures on object relations. The main thing that I want to do is to not necessarily get into specific thinkers, but what I want to do is talk about some of the main ideas that I think you will see in some way, shape, or form in pretty much any and all object relations theories. Uh, you might find these ideas expressed differently, of course, from one thinker's work to the, to the next, but I do think that what these ideas represent is the similarity, the kind of stuff that binds object relations theories together as like a cluster of, of theories, right? So the first thing that I want to highlight is that the term object in object relations refers to other people in the world. It is used to differentiate other people from the person who is experiencing those other people. So uh, this is kind of a, a weird thing to, to talk about. Your text touches on this too. Sometimes people, when they encounter object relations, they take issue with the idea of other people being described as objects. They don't like that. They think, why don't you just call it relations theory as opposed to object relations theory? And the reason that object relations theory uses the term object relations, uses the term object in, in the name of their theories, is that they separate a relationship into two parts. So part one is the subject, all right? So we could say that the subject is the person who's, from whose point of view the object, the relationship is being considered, right? And then there's the object, which is the other person in the relationship. So for example, in an infant-child relationship, from the infant's perspective, the mother is the object and the infant is the subject. Uh, and we could, of course, reverse that. If we do it from the mother's perspective, the infant is the object and the mother is the subject. What I want to highlight about this, which I think is super important, is this idea which is implied but not explicitly stated, at least not in your text. And it's this idea that we, you, me, and everybody we know, we are subjects, which means that we are subjected to experiences. Right? We are experiencing things, and the things that we experience, they have an effect on us. Right? We, are, we are the subject of those experiences. We are subjected to those experiences. And based on what those experiences do to us, that, that determines kind of like what we do next. It determines who and what we become as we move into the future. Right? Uh, additionally, you could say that you, me, and everybody we know tends to be our behavior tends to be not just random, but tends to be somewhat planned, right? We, we don't do things randomly. We, we do things because we're trying to get closer to some things or experiences and further away from other things and experiences. So for example, this is one of the things that Freud wrote about a lot. We tend to live our lives in ways that will move us closer to pleasurable things and move us further away from painful things. One of the things that we can experience which is pleasurable is you know, uh, meaningful, sustained, intimate connections with other human beings, uh, which the object relations theory would call objects. And likewise, there would be other sorts of relationships that would be very painful and traumatic and we would try to, to move away from those, right? If a relationship, if by being in a relationship we're subjected to things like abuse and neglect, we probably move away from the objects that are 
kind of inflicting that abuse and neglect onto us. And we will probably try to move closer to relationships that provide us with more pleasant experiences. So that's the first thing that I wanted to bring up here. The term object refers to other people in the world and trying to get you to think in the terms of object relations theory, which is, you know, the terms of object and subject. If you understand what I'm saying, that's great. Second big idea in all the different object relations theories is that they tend to focus on the process of a person coming to experience themselves as separate from, but connected to other people through relationships. Now this is, I'm gonna talk more about this later, but let me give you just a very, very quick overview. Now, there is a whole kind of uh, discipline, a sub-discipline within the social sciences, which is called infant research. There's a, a group of people who have made it their life's work to study human infants and to try to understand what the experience of being an infant is. And that might sound like kind of a weird thing to study, but it's actually really, really fascinating. We, none of us remember what it's like to be an infant. Our, our brains are not equipped to make memories at that early stage in our life. You know, human beings are creatures that are born, you know, at a, at a stage when their body still has a lot of development to do. If you compare like um, uh, human babies to horse babies, for example, after a horse is born, it kind of like can get up and start moving around. It's, it's a much more fully formed, ready to go animal. Human beings, on the other hand, are born at a point when their body still has a lot of development to go through. I don't know if any of you have heard of this, but there's actually uh, a term that gets thrown around. It's called the fourth trimester, which is kind of a funny term. So there's three trimesters in a pregnancy, right? That, that somebody would, if they, if somebody becomes pregnant and they carry the pregnancy to term and they give birth, there's these three trimesters that they go through. And then, you know, they give birth to a baby. And there's this idea that there's this period of time, it's about another three months or so, where that now born human infant has to still get a massive amount of care given to it because it's just so underdeveloped. It's so ill-equipped to care for itself, to, to do anything for itself at the time that it's born and that it needs other people to do pretty much everything for it because it's so underdeveloped. Uh, and during that time, you know, if you, if the infant is lucky enough to be born to responsive parents, those responsive parents will, will care for the infant through that period of time. And that, it, that will help the infant continue to develop into a healthy body and into a healthy person for the rest of its life. Um, so that's, that's one thing about this. The other thing that's really interesting is if you think about the way that human beings, you know, are conceived and carried inside of a, a woman's body for a long time. The mother and the baby are, are kind of connected and they're, they're sort of the same thing for quite some time. Then after the woman gives birth, what happens is the two bodies are actually physically separated from one another. They're no longer physically connected. But infant researchers suggest that even though there's now a physical separation, that there is still, uh, and this is kind of hard to explain, so bear with me here, a kind of emotional and psychological connection. They're still connected. Uh, for quite some time after the baby is physically born and physically separated from the mother. Object relations theories tend to 
be useful to infant researchers because what, what they look at is the ongoing process where after a human being is born, where after the human being is physically separated from the, the body that carried it as it developed in utero, uh, it continues to be connected, but then it continues to separate very gradually over a long period of time, right? Um, if you take a look at a three-month-old, you will see a creature which is far more connected, far more dependent upon the mother than a three-year-old or a 13-year-old, uh, hopefully. Anyways, that's what you'd see. Uh, and object relations tends to, to really be interested in that process of separation. And it finds that it's not a really linear process. It's not just like every day the mother and the baby and then the mother and the child and the mother and the teenager become a little bit more separated. What they find is that it kind of fluctuates where um, a child, an infant turns into a child, turns, turns into a teenager, turns into an adult. But during that time, what happens is the amount of connective connectedness that the person needs to its parents and then later on other people who kind of take the place of the parents like romantic partners and, and good friends and whatnot, that that, that need kind of fluctuates over time. And object relations theories tend to be really interested in, you know, the way that a person sort of balances or tries to balance on one hand, the need for connection with other people. And on the other hand, the need for separation from people. Uh, we could also say that's the need for community on one hand, the need for being a part of a social network of people who are, are connected through ties of family and friendship and profession and whatnot. And on the other hand, individuality, right? Our, our desire to be um, unique, to have a private life that is known only to ourselves and not anybody else. That, that there's a tension between these things. And that the way that a person tends to manage that tension is really interesting. And object relations theorists tend to kind of look at that, right? They look at the way that people cultivate all these different relationships with other people, with groups of people, the way that they move closer to those relationships at certain points and try to actually move away from those relationships at other points. And, and they're really interested in that. So that's the second thing. The third thing not all object relationships, not all human relationships are equal. Some relationships are more important to us than others, which means that some objects, some people are more important to us than others. That's pretty straightforward, so I'm not going to suss that out anymore. I think you're all smart enough to understand that. The fourth thing, object relations theory focuses mainly on the relationships between people as the thing, which is the crucial thing in personality development and formation. This makes it different from other things that might say that genetics are the most important thing in a person's development, or that intrapsychic forces like drives are the most important things in development. Object relations theory says, no, no, no. If you want a person to turn into a healthy person who has a really good life, the best way to do that is to make sure that that person has good relationships with other people and with other groups of people that can meet that individual's kind of unique set of needs over time. If you can do that, if, if a person has good relationships, it is way more likely that they will turn out into a, uh, a more healthy person. And if they have bad relationships, it is more likely that they will turn into a person that we might describe 
as having problems, as being perhaps maladjusted to their, their environment or something like that. Okay. The fifth thing, uh, another way to say what, what I kind of just said is that we learn to be who we are and what we are through being in relationships with other people. The most important other relationships in our life are very likely to be our primary caretakers, our parents, whoever it is that parents us, uh, whether that's our biological parents, you know, the, the two people who contributed the biological material to make us, or if it's, you know, grandparents or foster parents, whatever, whoever your primary caretakers are, for better or for worse, your relationship with those people in the very early part of your life, when you are the most dependent, is going to provide a sort of baseline or a sort of blueprint by which all other relationships are kind of compared. Uh, there's some thinkers like Peter Fonagy is one who comes to mind really quickly here, who call the relationships that we have with our parents, with our primary caretakers, uh, those those he calls them relational blueprints or internal working models or IWMs for short. Uh, the the point here, the fifth point that I'm trying to make is that it kind of builds on point number four that you know uh, <laughs> we need relationships and point number three that not all relationships are equal and it says that one of the most important relationships in our life, a relationship that for better or for worse will affect every other relationship that we have from that point forward is the relationship with our primary caretakers when we are born. Uh, sixth and last point that I want to make here. Uh, people create and then continually revise uh, a sort of inner map of how they fit into the world. And what that map is made up of is relationships. So basically what this means is that in our heads, we carry around with us this sort of uh, idea of how we are connected to other people and other groups of people. We might think something like if you see somebody, you might think, oh, that's my friend. I get along really well with that person. I'm very glad to see them. I'm going to go say hello. Uh, likewise, you might see somebody and think, ooh, that person doesn't like me. And actually, I don't like them very much either. We tend not to get along. So I hope they don't see me. I'm going to kind of like move to a place where we are unlikely to have contact. Those sorts of things, those uh, the being in those sorts of situations and making those choices are, are based off of the sort of internal map of our relatedness to other people. Now, this map is inside our heads. And so no one else can see it. Only we can see it. And sometimes that map is accurate. And other times that map is inaccurate. A lot of what happens in psychotherapy, which is kind of operating from an object relations theories uh, paradigm, tries to do is explore that map. And sometimes to find areas where that map is accurate, you can kind of go, okay, that, that part's fine. We'll leave that alone. And also then to find parts of that map that are inaccurate, that kind of don't make sense or, or are filled with errors or something, and then try to make the person who has that map aware of those errors. They may correct those errors. They may not. You don't actually know what they're going to do, but you can try to make them aware of them. So I think that that's it. Yes, that is it. That is my overview of stuff that you're going to find in pretty much all of the different object relations theories out there. Don't, don't, don't.
so to, to wrap up this podcast lecture, what I want to do is I want to give you just a quick little bit of information, my take on, on object relations theories. Uh, first thing I want to say is I think that there's stuff that object relations theories definitely get right. Uh, and one of those things is that relationships are super important. They're massively important to, to people. We are social creatures. We exist within a social context. Our social relationships with family, with friends, coworkers, et cetera, these are very important things. And our significant relationships the, with people like our parents and with our children, with uh, our closest friends and colleagues, those relationships are absolutely going to have a massive formative effect on who we are and what we become over time. I also agree that if our relationships are good, they're not abusive or traumatic, it is far more likely that we will turn out way better than if our relationships are abusive and if they significantly traumatize us. Uh, if anybody's ever heard of ACEs, which is a, a thing that stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, you, you can Google this. It's a set of questions which tries to clue you into the amount of uh, potential trauma that a person had in their early years, right? And, and those things matter. Like the people who have way more, because everybody has some trauma in their life, but some people have way more than others. And if you have a lot of trauma in your life, a lot of relational trauma, trauma that is inflicted on you, if you are subjected to a lot of trauma from other people mistreating you, uh, that's going to have a really, really, really significant, oftentimes negative effect on who and what a, a person becomes. That This is obvious. And I think that object relations theories say this, and I definitely agree. The things that I'm a little skeptical about are the idea that a therapist or a psychoanalyst who's really somebody who you don't spend that much time with, all things considered, like even if you do multiple sessions in a week or something like that, it's still a relatively low amount of time compared to the amount of available hours in a week. The idea that that one relationship will be enough to undo, correct for damage that might have been done in in areas is something that I'm a little skeptical of. Now, I don't want to say that that it can't do anything. I'm just, uh, sometimes I think that object relations thinkers kind of will put forward this idea that having a good therapeutic relationship can be more effective than I think it can be. It can be effective. It can be good. It can do good things. I think that it, it is limited in how much it can accomplish and that for a person to be a healthy person, they need to have other relationships outside of their therapist's office which are good and offer them things that are good experiences, fulfilling experiences, things like that. Um, and, and I also think that object relations theory sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes overplays the significance of satisfying our patients, of giving them satisfying experiences uh, to the point where it underplays the value of what Kohut called optimal frustration. Sometimes frustration can be a good thing. Now, obviously a person can have more frustration than is good. There are some people who have way more frustration in their lives than they need. Uh, for example, people who are living in poverty right now, I am confident that they have way more frustration than is necessary, way more frustration than a person should have. And I want them to get out of poverty. I want them to have less frustration. However, uh, the idea of a life that is totally absent of frustration is a ridiculous fantasy that no one ever gets to live. And there are times where being frustrated is a natural, normal thing that we just kind of have to be able to experience without it wrecking us. And, and I think that sometimes object relations therapists and, and theorists don't really value the power of frustration in, in the right amounts as much as they value giving people satisfying experiences. 
And that's something that we can talk about more in class or in future podcast lectures. Maybe we'll see. Um, but that's my critique here. So that's it for this one. Uh, you'll probably see another podcast lecture for this week that I'm going to want you to listen to. And uh, until I see you in class, everybody, please, please, please make some glorious mistakes. Don't the man keep you down. Damn the demand, save the desire, all that fun stuff. I will see you soon.